get started, I want to say thank you for being here this afternoon um, on this kind of wet day. Um, so today we have with us Patrick Sands. Um, he is our Vice Provost from UW-Madison Office of Equity and Inclusion and Diversity and a very, very long, long, long title. So I would let Patrick do more of an introduction and give you a little bit more information about his um, bio um, and what he will be talking about today. But he is the second in our series of feature speakers um, that we plan on having throughout the year today. And so, Patrick. If you don't mind, I try not to hang too close to the mic or behind the podium. I kind of like to move a little bit. Is that okay? How are we doing this afternoon? Really? Right, that's the obligatory. Yeah, we're all right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I, I'm thrilled to be here, and really I want to take this opportunity to share a little bit about uh, the Division of Diversity, Equity, and Educational Achievement, which is the unit uh, that I run at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. But more importantly, I'm interested in having a conversation uh, with you all, perhaps uh, taking a few questions, sharing a little bit additional insight into what it takes to do all that I do at the university. It's a heavy lift. I have an amazing team who work very closely with me, uh, 85 staff members to be exact, full, 85 full-time staff members. And during the summer, with our ramp of our people program, uh, we take on additional 250 staff members. So it's not a small enterprise, but nonetheless, it is um, relative in scale to the rest of the institution. We're, we're smaller, but we have, um, as I say, we pack a lot of punch for our size, right? So a little bit about me. I'm a faculty member. I've been at UW-Madison since the fall of 2004, so I teach in the Department of Theater and Drama. Dun, 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 right? So as they say, don't call us, we'll call you. You all pass the audition, right? Uh, but nonetheless, I, I've been here for now going on 14 years at this institution, so it's been uh, a labor of love. Uh, it has been the, the place where I've sort of cut my academic teeth, if you will. I've taught at the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee for three years um, before joining the, the faculty at UW-Madison. It's been a real privilege to kind of see the institution wrestle with some of these big issues, particularly as they relate to diversity and inclusion, but more importantly, now to be a part of some of the solutions, right? And depending on who you ask, some of the challenges, right, the role that we play. So I'll quickly run through sort of, again, a brief overview of what we're up to. Uh, you may find points or linkages, things that you might be interested in asking questions about, which we can take near the end. So I understand I have an hour, so hopefully this will probably take at most 20, 25 minutes, so we'll have a good chunk of time near the end for questions. So I'll get started. Uh, one of the things I want folks to understand is our infrastructure, right? A lot of people don't know what it takes uh, to run the Division of Diversity, Equity, Educational Achievement, but it's a lot. So there's the office, right? So I have a responsibility, sort of central team, about 25 individuals. Uh, a good two-thirds of our infrastructure is focused on pipeline programs and recruitment. So how many of you ever heard of the people program? All right, excellent. So that's one of our key programs. We have five additional other programs that we supervise. So there's our Chancellor Scholars program, which is our merit-based program, our high-achieving program, our Powers NAP, which is an offshoot of the Chancellor Scholars program. have another program called First Wave, uh, which is our Urban Arts Collective program, another program called CEO, which is a federal trio program. Then we have programs, uh, people, posse, and so forth that help us round out our infrastructure. In addition to that, Shared governance is something that I play a huge role in. And so not many folks outside of the institution know about shared governance. I see Omer, right, one of our students who's former shared governance chair of ASM. Uh, we got a chance to hang out a little bit this year. But it's actually uh, quite essential to getting things done. Uh, at university, we talk about shared governance as a way of how decisions are made. Um, and, you know, there's a wide range of spectrum of opinions on how those decisions get made, right? So the extent to which university officials uh, engage other elements of the university, be it our faculty, our students, our associate students at Madison, our uh, academic staff, and our university staff, uh, which was a body of individuals that the, individ that the university chose to recognize when we had the cessation of collective bargaining, also known as Act 10, right? So the university chose to say, hey, for individuals who are formally hourly employees, we wanted to give you a seat at the table, and so we created our university staff congress to hear their voices in some of the major decision-making processes as well. Uh, then we have the affirmative action and equal employment opportunity piece that's a part of us. 
there are parts of compliance that live with our newly formed Office of Compliance, but we deal with our Affirmative Action Plan, our Executive Order 54, uh, which is mandate reporting uh, any abuse against a minor. There are a whole host of other pieces that we manage with respect to our diversity infrastructure. And then last but not least, our campus engagement and education outreach. That's where the heavy lifting actually lives. When we talk about building capacity, we talk about creating opportunities for faculty, staff, and students to more intentionally reflect, build their skill sets as they relate to diversity, equity, inclusion. It's in those uh, professional development experiences that we give uh, individuals an opportunity to say, yeah, I want to learn more. I want to take a deeper dive into what it takes uh, to build an inclusive, welcoming environment for all. And undergirding all of that, I say, is our grassroots commitment, right? It's, it's our alumni. It's our community partners. It's our partnerships with the city. It's all the pieces that help hold the university accountable for how we comport and exercise the business that we do. So these are the pieces that help shape the infrastructure known as the office of the vice provost and chief diversity officer. Um, I'll quickly read through some of these. You may not be able to see them, but we talk about our strategic planning and our gears for success. So we have a mission statement that guides our work, and our mission is simply this, to lead, support, and embody UW-Madison's commitment to diversity, equity, and educational excellence in principle and in practice. So we just don't want to be a bunch of talking heads. We actually want to do some stuff, right? We want to be able to walk the walk in addition to talking to talk. Our vision here is to create a UW-Madison community where everyone thrives uh, personally and professionally in diverse, global, and interconnected environments on campus and beyond. So, again, we want to make things as actionable-oriented as possible. Uh, our values, community, certainly being at the forefront of that, inclusion, organizational excellence, transparency, accountability, and social justice. Uh, we talk about goals, strategic leadership, so positioning ourselves to be an asset to the institution. So as the institution begins to more properly understand its relationship with the chief diversity officer, we're there to try and help in inform and give some guidance on strategic leadership. Uh, we talk about organizational excellence. That's always something that we aspire to. And then, of course, transparency being key, right? Getting back to the decision-making process that's under the shared governance pillar, right? So how decisions are made, we want to make sure people understand, at least in our neck of the woods, uh, what those processes look like and what the distinctions are between what I like to describe as collaborative decision-making processes and executive decision-making processes. And it's interesting because we try to create the space where we have collaborative decision-making processes be our sort of default way of engagement, but there are times where you've got to make the call, right? And that often lives with me. As they say in Shakespeare, heavy is the head that wears the crown, right? <laughs> of course, all my hair is gone, so it may slip off a little bit, but that's, that's another point. So we talk about diversity for the 21st century. Uh, this is from our campus strategic uh, framework. University of Wisconsin-Madison will be a model public university in the 21st century, serving as a resource to the public and working to enhance the quality of life in the state the nation, and the world, right? So this is our guiding, part of our guiding institutional philosophy, right? What makes us tick? What makes us work? Um, my office has been responsible for stewarding our strategic diversity framework. So if you ever heard anything about our plan, um, forward together, a diversity framework for inclusive excellence, um, I'm responsible for trying to take what is pretty much an abstract conceptual document, drill down, and make it applicable, right? Things that we can actually do that you can measure success in moving the needle. So we have something called the real change, uh, which is the implementation plan, right? So how we go about bringing to life those uh, concepts and ideas in our framework. Uh, our real change simply stands for retaining, equipping, engaging, and leading. Right? How do you go about building the capacity of every member of our campus to understand the role they play in creating a welcoming, inclusive, and diverse environment for everyone? Uh, I won't read this entire thing to you. You can go to our website, diversity.wisc.edu. So if you're interested in learning more, everything I'm sharing with you now, you can pretty much find there. But this is our institutional statement on our commitment to diversity. And I'll talk about this briefly because the process we went through to build this was a great example of what I described the engagement in shared governance. So early on, when I stepped in this role, uh, I asked the question, what are institutional values around diversity and inclusion? Right? How are we demonstrating our commitment? How does a layperson walk up to UW-Madison and see, feel, and believe that we're actually doing things that create that welcoming environment? And so I began to say there's a ton of stuff that we do, but not everybody knows about it. So we kind of have this odd dynamic, this love-hate relationship, uh, more so the love than the hate. 
but this space where we're focusing on things that not many people are aware of, and we're trying to get all of us pointed in the same direction, but there's no clear articulation of what the direction is or should be. I wanted to build a statement that wasn't my statement, wasn't the chancellor's statement, wasn't the provost's statement, but it was the statement of the collective. It was a statement of our shared governance. And so we did just that. We um, worked with students. We worked with our university staff, our academic staff, our faculty, and our senior administration to craft this statement here. And this is a result of a nine-month process, right? And once we've got it completed, last fall, we moved through all of the governance body to seek their endorsement. So I'm pleased to say that all of our employee shared governance groups uh, have endorsed it. We're still connecting with our students um, to find ways in which they can support us and align behind the statement as well. So there's a partnership that's emerging, and we have buy-in at every level that we're trying to work on and ensure that, again, it's not just me that's doing this. It's the responsibility of the collective. Uh, our implementation timeline for a real change document, we're wanting to be intentional, right? Too often with respect to diversity crises, things happen. You have to respond immediately and put out the fire, right? That's priority number one. That's not a sustainable way of doing this work, I can tell you, right? So putting up fires constantly is not something I really want to do. That said, the extent to which we can be mindful and forecast a decade in advance of things that we ought to be focusing on, uh, ensuring that we build, again, the right partnerships and get the right buy-in, we're setting ourselves up for a decade to focus on 18 initiatives that will guide that activity. And we're, yes? Oh, you need to use the mic. Oh, now you tell me. Right after I've been dancing all off the side of it. So here we go. Um, sorry for those who didn't hear me. Right? Or are you recording this? Oh, you're recording. Oh, that's not in my contract. We have to talk about that. No. Anyway, um, back to this, the 10-year plan, 18 initiatives. We're targeting six initiatives per phase, phase one, two, and three. We're just wrapping up our phase one, moving into phase two. And that process has been very fruitful for us. So we've identified uh, six of the initiatives, um, one of which is making sure we have a cohesive strategy around messaging for our diversity, uh, some philanthropic activity that we've developed with respect to supporting our programs, et cetera. So I can go in more detail on those. But we're not doing everything at once, and that's the key take-home here. It's not all happening at once. It can't all happen at once. Uh, we didn't get in the situation that we're in overnight. We're not going to get out of it overnight either, right? So we're being intentional about where we put our energies and how we focus on uh, what the next step will be and when, and ensuring, again, there's buy-in at every senior level and also every uh, intermediate level along the way. So how are we learning from others? Uh, we're wanting to strengthen relationships with campus and community partners. I mean, that's a big one for us. Uh, in fall 2016, I worked with the chancellor to form our first ever chancellor's advisory, community advisory committee. Uh, this committee has met four times this year, and we've talked about a whole host of things. Um, if you can recall, last fall, uh, I believe it was right maybe a week before homecoming or after we had an incident with the news in Camp Randall. As you can imagine, that got a lot of attention, national attention. Um, we were open to feedback, um, and the university, I think, learned some big lessons along the way in how we responded to that situation and how we would do things differently uh, looking in hindsight uh, moving forward. Hopefully... We won't have to use those lessons uh, in terms of what we gleaned from our community uh, council and the input that they gave us. Uh, we won't have to use those skill sets right away, but I, as you can imagine, there's always some new crisis that's perhaps waiting in the wings. And the extent to which we seek input and guidance, I think that's first and foremost for us. And uh, the chancellor has made that commitment pretty boldly, and so I appreciate that. And so we're working closely to make sure that, again, we're not just talking the talk, but we're actually walking the walk, that we do something with the feedback that they give us. Our campus climate survey. So one of the initiatives from our real change document was to get a handle on what's actually happening with respect to our campus climate. Uh, campus climate is this all elusive phenomenon where you know it um, and people have tons of ideas about what campus climate looks like. We don't have a ton of data on what actually goes into shaping and informing that campus climate. So for the first time in the history of the university, we have surveyed uh, I should say we have made available a survey to all of our students. So all 43,000-some-odd students um, uh, were able to take the survey. We're aiming for about a 20% response rate, which we did receive, so just over 8,000. Uh, students gave us feedback on this survey, and we're in the process of collecting that information, analyzing the data to bring forth a set of recommendations this coming fall. So I'm really excited about that. 
we are rebuilding and revamping our people program. In just a couple of years, the program went through an external evaluation. Um, the first external evaluation in the history of the program, so if you think about something been around for 16 years, um, when you finally get a chance to look under the hood, you're going to find some things you need to fix and pay attention to, and so we knew that. So we went into it with our eyes wide open about what it would look like to revision the program and really focus on what our best asset is in terms of a campus and community resource for the students that we serve. And so we've narrowed our scope a bit to focus on a single point of entry. Uh, there used to be five separate points of entry into the program. Now we have a single point of entry, grade eight, and we're providing similar services across the entire state. Uh, what most folks aren't aware is the people program, not only does it live here in Madison, uh, we have a footprint in Milwaukee, and we, we used to service communities um, from Racine, Kenosha area, and Waukesha. We also have a footprint in what we call People North, which is working very closely with our tribal partners and communities. So we are continually to refine what our service is, what the value add is to the um, broader community, but more importantly, making sure that the deliverable, right, which is preparation, college preparation, is, is focused enough in a way that we set Madison as the standard. So if a student can get admitted to UW-Madison, chances are they can get admitted to just about anywhere in the country, right? We also recognize that UW-Madison is not for everyone. People want perhaps a smaller experience as opposed to a large 43,000 people walking around, right? So we're mindful that at the end of the day, we want students to go to college, to think about college in ways they hadn't before. And so for us, this is really significant in helping us fine-tune what that deliverable is for our students and participants. Uh, this year, uh, I should say this past fall, uh, we uh, took a, a bold step. Uh, some of our students um, challenged the institution, right? They gave a set of demands, five demands, that they wanted to see the institution respond to. And if you remember fall 2015, anybody knows what happened fall 2015 across the country? All right, a little place called Mizzou, right? We, we know about that. Well, the demands, I mean, they, they went across the country, right? So Madison, we weren't exempt from those. We had our own share of demands. The good thing about our situation is that we actually were doing things that were already on the books uh, that were responsive to, in some ways, the demands that were being asked of us. Uh, one in particular was a requirement for every faculty member, uh, staff member, and student to engage in some type of cultural competency uh, experience, some type of training. Uh, so our students worked with our senior administration, uh, my good colleague Lori Bergram, the folks in the Dean of Students Office, to come up with a program called the Our Wisconsin Program. And this is an onboarding program for first-year students. And so we piloted this project last year with 1,000 students. So each year we get roughly around 6,500 new students coming in. So we piloted with 1,000 students uh, to beta test to make sure that, A, we actually did something that was going to work. There's research, and in some instances conflicting research, that suggests um, you know, how you go about doing this, right? Research that would tell us if you force people to do it, you're actually going to have uh, uh, the opposite effect, right? People sort of dig in their heels and they don't engage, and you actually create more resentment towards these ideas. Uh, the other research suggests, well, you've got to have some way of shaping the conversation. Otherwise, this sort of amorphous understanding that people will be enlightened on their own, well, that just doesn't work out either. So we found a good compromise with the Our Wisconsin program that, again, was the result of a collaborative effort, but focused not so much on what it means to be culturally competent, but it's understanding who you are right, and understanding who you are relative to the people who are now part of this community that you're joining as a new student. And that being the emphasis uh, really shifted the dynamic from being some type of indoctrination experience, uh, which some have dubbed these kinds of trainings, uh, to something that's really about capacity building, recognizing what your strengths are and your growth areas are as it relates to the community that you're now becoming a part of. Uh, so that was our Wisconsin program. Uh, University Health Services also responded to another uh, demand, which was providing more mental health support services for students, particularly students of color, right? The kinds of things that we saw happening, not only on our campus, but across the nation. Um, the horrific stories, and I won't go into great detail, but you know them. You've seen the headlines. Um, having dedicated folk who are there ready and understanding how to talk about these issues is critical. And uh, the extent to which our students were asking that, that was some of the additional leverage that we needed, quite frankly, to move on things that we're already doing, which is a ramp up of additional staff and support in our university health services, particularly attracting individuals of color to be there and being able to speak to from common experience or lived experiences about how to negotiate some of those challenges. Uh, this coming fall, uh, fall 2017, our annual diversity forum, 
uh, November 7th and 8th. So we do this every year as an update on our respective diversity activities. But it's also, again, that enlightening experience to partner with the community. Uh, a few years back, we had uh, the author, Brian Stevens, of the book uh, Just Mercy. Phenomenal, phenomenal read. If you haven't read that book, uh, I got a few extra copies. I can give them to Torres. You can probably help get them out to you all. But um, just an amazing experience to kind of get some insight into what his work was, being a lawyer, working for people who are on death row without having representation and, and exonerating individuals, right? So it isn't just working with folk, but it's actually getting folk off who were falsely accused or somehow the system failed them. Uh, regrettably, more often than not, many of the clients that he worked with are people of color, right? So hearing some of the journeys and challenges that he was going through and also being inspired uh, by the fact that this is a man who still has a sense of hope, a sense of aspiration that we will turn this corner and we, we will figure this thing out called diversity and inclusion uh, and how we support each other as a broader community was really fascinating. But having that be part of our diversity forum was critical for us. So we were really excited to partner. Uh, this year we have some things in the mix. I can't say just yet who we're looking at for our keynote, but we, we expect another jam-packed event. And, in fact, this year is going to be two days, uh, the second day in particular focusing on mental health and wellness, right? So that's, that's part of that footprint for us. Uh, our diversity inventory project, that's just a way of getting a snapshot on all the things that the institution does with respect to diversity and inclusion. Uh, having a map of what has been dubbed upwards of 300 diversity efforts, communities, uh, committees, uh, resources, research opportunities for diversity and inclusion. We're trying to figure that out, inventory it, so we know what's happening, so we can create better alignment with resource allocation and support for those types of activities. Uh, we just sort of revamped our website. So, again, that's that diversity.wisstudy.du. Um, you know, it, it's very simple things, right? They aren't terribly sexy, but they're things that are necessary and essential to have a good presence, a good healthy presence so people know what's going on. Uh, we began a series of newsletters for our alums, in particular our alums of color. Uh, I was surprised to find this out, but, uh, well, let me ask you. If you were to think about a city that has the highest number of alumni of color, what city comes to mind? Atlanta? Just shout them out. D.C. is my way of making sure you all still with me, right? We haven't quite dozed off, right? D.C., Atlanta, Dallas, Dallas New York, L.A., Philadelphia, Chicago. What if I told you it was Madison? Madison, Wisconsin, right? Yeah. Madison, Wisconsin, yeah, more than Atlanta, more than D.C., L.A. Uh, so that community is a community that's ripe for engagement, right, ripe for participating, A, because they're right here, more importantly because we haven't reached out to them, right? So we're realizing that there are uh, tons of opportunities that the university can leverage in engaging and getting people excited about what it means to be an alum of the institution. Uh, it's hard to say that when we recognize we have over 400,000 living alumni and if you've ever been to a game, you see generations of families, like Bleeding Badger Red, like grandpa, great-grandpa, mom went there, the kid's there, and then you've got the niece and nephew and the baby on the hip. It's like, you know, six generations going to a game. Um, but there's still folk that we've missed, right, folk that we want to engage and be excited about their Badger experience as alumni. So we're reaching out to those. Uh, we have an event that we started about three years ago where we recognize the graduates of our programs. Uh, when I share it with you, we have six programs. We have eight programs overall. Six of them are under our purview, and over half of our students of color, our targeted minority students, are in one of those programs, those support services. So the fact that we have upwards of 1,500 students, uh, we thought it important to recognize their contributions, to hear their name called as they walk across the stage and get their hand shaked by an official of the institution. In this case, it happens to be me, but also our program directors. Uh, was something that we wanted to preserve, was something that we felt was significant enough that it was worth calling out a special event for them. And other units on campus do this. Other schools and colleges find a way to recognize the graduates. So we wanted to do the same. And so we have uh, some great, great images. Again, if you want to go check those out, diversity.wist.edu, you'll see some of our photos from our graduate recognition ceremony. All right. Uh, we have a few things with internships and research awards. I won't labor this too much, but... We're trying to respond to the opportunities uh, that our students said that they really need access to, one being paid internships, uh, what it means to be able to take a, an unpaid internship and having support to do that. Uh, we know that 
those are often the gateways to those professional development experiences that lead to jobs. And if you're toying around with needing to pay the bills or taking an unpaid internship, well, guess what's getting taken care of? It's paying the bills, right? So we have resources that we're putting in place to support students to participate in our internship program. We're also having uh, resources made available for students who are interested in study abroad for many of the same challenges, right? So you can't get away for an entire semester. But if you're interested in a six-week or less study abroad opportunity, uh, there's a competitive process that you go to where you can compete for resources and we'll pay up to a certain amount to assist students in that area. Uh, so we're trying to level the playing field, particularly for students who, again, have historically either been first-gen or low-income who want to take advantage of these opportunities, but they haven't had the chance to do so. Well, in our small way, we're trying to contribute to that process to help them out along the way here. Our community par partnerships, our Latino Youth Summit, uh, we partner very closely with Centro Hispano on this. Uh, our annual powwow, so powwow 2017, over 6,200 folk showed up for the powwow at the Alliant Energy Center this year. Uh, we just launched our brand new uh, Black Cultural Center. Uh, so we had a major kickoff celebration. Uh, and this center is available not just to our campus community, but also our broader community. So if you're interested in learning more about um, the diaspora, not just African-American, but African-Caribbean and so forth, uh, there's some really amazing things that we're putting on. So uh, we were inspired by the grand opening of the National Museum of African-American History and Culture. So we're ripping a page from their playbook to provide a similar experience uh, that's grounded in the University of Wisconsin-Madison, but it's, it's much larger than that. And it certainly doesn't hurt the fact that we have the Wisconsin Historical Society right across the street from us. So we're looking at some really cool partnerships. Uh, more partnerships here are current partnerships. So Leslie Rancha, she's, uh, if you think of diversity as a coin, right, and I'm on one side of that coin, right, working internally. Leslie Arancia, she's on the other side of that coin, working with our external partners and constituents. So she works very closely with our, our Madison partnership, our, our site that's right off of Park Street, down on Park Street, I should say. Our Network Fellows Program out of the School of Education is another partnership that we have going on. Then, of course, uh, building out uh, support programs with the Odyssey Program and the Madison South Partnership there. Possible future collaborations. Um, cities undergoing racial equity analysis and the impact big marches and rallies has on the city. Uh, we're trying to think about how, does, how do those events impact the broader community writ large, right? So there's a campus, right, which is often the source of sort of promoting those kinds of activities. But then there are things that, that go beyond the campus. Uh, Day Without Latinos, for example, that was huge, right? You had folk literally come from all across the nation to participate in that uh, effort, and the university, um, you know, has a role to play. Uh, we talk about the seeking tolerance and justice over hate, uh, possibility of a partnership. Uh, our UW-Madison Dean of Students, we have this program that regrettably is a trend that has happened across campuses where we, we talk about bias, incident, and response teams, right? So when things happen, when, you know, you see things like swastikas painted on walls or N-words scrabbled across bathrooms or chalking on, on concrete, you know, those kinds of things, again, go towards um, creating a kind of climate, an environment that sends a clear message, right, to our students. And regardless of your background, whether you're a person of color, whether you're LGBT, whether you're Muslim, you know, you fill in the blank. Um, if you are part of a community that has historically been marginalized, many of the challenges that we see are things that are directed at those communities that send clear signals from some people, not all, but they send clear signals nonetheless that those individuals aren't welcome. And so part of my job is trying to combat and, and fight against those kinds of examples. Uh, so we now have a system where we can actually track, right? People can share that information and report out on what the biases uh, are happening, the nature of the biases, and the extent to which there's follow-up that can be made available in support services for students, uh, primarily students right now, but we're expanding it to support uh, faculty and staff. Um, it's, it's, it regrettably is one of the necessary evils, if you will, I put that in quotes, of what it means to run an enterprise like the University of Wisconsin, right? We aren't the only ones wrestling with this. Every institution, be it large research institution or small private, is having to build some form of tracking these kinds of things so they know where to put resources and how to respond accordingly. Uh, so our task is to try and be proactive as opposed to reactive in some of these situations. Our data research, uh, it's really important to recognize that we're a research institution. Um, but it is not at the expense of the people that we connect and partner with, right? So we're building out, for example, our Native Nations partnership, and this is really key. 
uh, because past iterations of research has been folks entering communities, collecting data, saying thank you very much, and, and really getting all up in folk business and then walking out never to be seen again. Uh, we don't want the sort of one-and-done kind of phenomenon. We want to have a sustained relationship. So it's really important that as we continue to uh, maintain our academic prowess and focus on what it means to be R1, how we build those relationships so they're, A, sustainable and meaningful to the partnerships and communities that we're collaborating with. So this is a really key for us that we're trying to focus on. Uh, and then, of course, uh, promoting vacancies, right? So on city committees to be uh, attract more diverse participants and audiences. I suspect you all are wrestling with many of the same things that we have, right? Because you have your faithful few, and that's it, right? And you have folk who are kind of on the sidelines who are quite capable but are worried and say, well, I'm white, or I'm this, or I'm that. I'm straight. I can't participate in that conversation. Um, but what we miss out is the opportunity to learn a little bit more, to stretch ourselves a little bit more, to, to engage in the experience. And so the extent to which we build capacity, again, going back to that green pillar that I talked about earlier, building capacity for folks to feel comfortable engaging these issues, that's really key for us. And so we, we recognize that that is more of an emergent learning process, so we may not see the benefits of those activities right away, uh, but the return on diversity and inclusion is something that I think pays dividends over time. And once you set the seeds and you plant them right and you start to get that um, annual blossoming coming back year after year, I think you reach a tipping point. We're certainly on the infancy uh, end of that spectrum where we're beginning to plant the seeds, and some have been on rocky grounds, and others have been flourishing like crazy, uh, but it's still a process nonetheless that you work through to uh, get the final outcome you're looking for. So again, if you want to learn more about what we're up to, just visit diversity.wis.edu. If you're interested in also learning about some of the initiatives that I talked about, uh, you can visit our campusclimate.wes.edu slash initiatives. And did I do my time? I think I did my time. We're done. That's me. If you want to call me, if you want to send me an email, you can do that too. I'll pause here. Thank, thank you so much for the opportunity to speak with you all this morning. So what I would like to do at this point, um, Patrick covered a lot of information, and I'm sure you're just steaming with, with questions at this point. And so we probably have about 40 minutes, um, about 15 minutes now, um, to kind of dive into some question and answer. And I really do um, hope that um, we could um, do some kind of conversational piece at this point and feel welcome to ask, you know, pretty much anything. Yes. <laughs> so at the city of Madison, we talk about inside and outside strategy, and mm -hmm. I know that you talk about 18 initiatives in three phases. Can you kind of talk about how you struck a balance between creating sort of this internal focus and external community focus in those right. So that would imply that that was what we did, right? We had this internal. <laughs> no, 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 that's fine. So, so in a lot of ways, you know, this is part art, part science, right? Because at the end of the day, you're dealing with something that's very subjective for some folk, right? So when you have a conversation about diversity, equity, and inclusion, uh, there's a spectrum, a very wide spectrum. So one end of the spectrum says, hey, it's a bunch of hogwash, suck it up, get over it, pull yourself up by your bootstraps, um, and, and go on with your life, right? So that's one end of the spectrum, and I'm probably not being as nice as I should, but I think you know where my end of the spectrum is. The other end of the spectrum is, hey, we've got a lot of work to do. Right. There are some historical dynamics that we have yet to address and or correct, and we ought to be paying attention to that. And the generation of students as they come now aren't as patient, right? aren't as willing to sort of wait until the opportune time to engage. Um, we are in an era, in my opinion, that is harkening back to the 1960s, and some would say, I would say even 1940s, where there's enough happening that says something different has to change, right? And we have to all of us, not just communities of color or those that are, quote, unquote, disenfranchised, have to have some ownership of the solution. So in that sense, whether it's an internal solution or an external solution, uh, we don't necessarily look at it the way, at least I don't. It's trying to find what the best lever point is to get the outcome that I'm looking for. And so there may be instances, for example, where I can't say anything, right, if I feel a certain way about a particular decision or the way certain, certain things have been handled, uh, it's in my best interest to reflect the collective will, 
right? So I will engage students. I will get a sense of where our students are in certain things. I will engage faculty. I will engage staff. And I will engage across not just those who are in the choir, but really try to seek to understand those who may have uh, alternative views that would, um, you know, give a different lens on a particular issue. So, for example, um, we're having a very robust conversation around free speech right now. Right? Every institution is dealing with this. Like, what is free speech? Uh, and when does free speech become um, complicit to promoting violence and encouraging violence? Right. So that's a that's a heady discussion. But you have an institution, right, whose bread and butter, whose like core principle revolves around free speech and academic freedom. And as a faculty member, you know, I'll go to the mat for that. And as an African-American man, I also know that some of the stuff I hear in the name of free speech, while it is technically protected, it's not quote unquote hate speech. Man, we get awfully close. And so while we may not have the clean smoking gun to suggest that, aha, you violated free speech or you infringed on this aspect, or you just promoted hate speech. What's the outcome? What's the impact? Because there's the intention. Then there's the impact, and oftentimes the impact is what sets the reality. And so how you negotiate those pieces is really critical. And uh, the only way I know how to do that is to do it in community and to get as many perspectives as we can and ask very basic common questions. What would you do if this were your son, right, your daughter, going to school, being called, you know, a racial epithet or a slur by virtue of their identity or who they are? Would that be something you're, you'd be comfortable with? My sense is the average person would say absolutely not. Right. So then how do we find those common threads to help us move the conversation forward? So there are times where, you know, situations like this engaging community partners uh, is is critical. But then there are also those other internal conversations that happen. It's like, OK, so who's going who's going to do the heavy lifting? Right. What resource is going to be made to do the heavy lifting? Right. Um, and while I can't always lead that charge, I'm very clear I have to have a way to engage and be available if necessary. So I, I kind of hope that answers your question, the extent to the internal, external strategy. It's, it's an all-hands-on-deck approach in my world. <laughs> right. Yes. Yes. Yeah. So I'm wondering, working in a large institution, trying to make big change, what keeps you inspired? I left my flask in the car. No, I'm kidding. No. What keeps me inspired? What keeps me doing this work? Yeah, well, that's a great question, and I ask myself that frequently, right? Because i, I got to tell you, this is not a job that's for the faint of heart, right? This is long-term stuff we're talking about. We didn't get in here overnight. We're not going to get out overnight. Uh, but I think what keeps me hopeful are a couple of things. One, um, there has been progress, right? So let's not forget that although the mountain is is so high, right, and we still can't see quite see the top of it, we've come a long way, right? And so acknowledging that progress has been made, uh, really celebrating the fact that we've made some progress. So that's encouraging. The other part of this is, you know, I, I see myself and our students, and when I was that, that person that was a rebel rouser, and I, I don't mean in, the, in a pejorative sense, but I was the kind of person that um, – Challenged, right? Challenged status quo, challenged leadership, challenged every chance I got um, because I had strong ideals, values, and opinions about the way I thought the world should be. And it wasn't until I listened to my grandmother's wisdom, just keep on living, as she would say, that you start to see other things and that they aren't as black and white um, because I actually was protected from some of the variables of what it means to be an adult, right? I didn't have to worry about um, you know, providing for a family or I didn't have to worry about the struggles that my grandparents went through, you know, who, who only had elementary school educations, but yet, you know, had this amazing family and have amazing aunts and uncles and amazing cousins. So recognizing that where they were in their journeys, and, you know, I, I'm 40-something, I won't give the exact age, but in my early 40s, uh, and what I'm able to do in my early 40s compared to what my grandparents were able to do in their early 40s, very different, very different lived experience. So that's very comforting. The other part of this is, you know, I, I was reading an article um, it's a magazine, web, web, web magazine called diversityinc.com, and it was an article about HBCUs. I forget who the, the keynote was, but basically the challenge that she issued to HBCUs, historically black colleges and universities, to really think about their relationship with members of the LGBTQ community, right, that there um, are some sort of historical traditions that we could easily characterize as homophobic, 
right? And yet they're still very prevalent and present today. And so she was calling these folks out, right? And one of the examples they gave was when you look at sort of social media, and I think this was, um, there's a show, Will and Grace, anybody remember the show Will and Grace? Right, where you got Will and Grace happening right around, I think it was late 90s or something like that, um, where just two years earlier, Ellen, her show, she came out, everyone was in a tizzy, canceled the show, but then you have Will and Grace coming on two years later, and then you have, you know, Queer Eye for the Straight. You have all of these pieces that suggest that people uh, are evolving how they think about engaging their, our LGBTQ brothers and sisters. So there, there's always room for hope and growth, and I would say the minute we lose that, we're already done. Right? The minute you lose hope, aspirations, things that are big pictures, right? If you can't conceive that, right, you're not going to achieve it. So those are things that I try to stay focused on, the positive as opposed to the negative. But, you know, some days are better than others. All right, thank you. Yes, question in the back? Sure. Uh, we are literally in the embassy, so we've only had two meetings thus far. So that committee just began, but we anticipate being able to roll out uh, some recommendations um, based on the data that we have gleaned from this survey for the um, diversity forum November 7th. So stay tuned. Uh, there will be a breakout session on, on the updates, and we'll have um, a sort of press conference prior to that as well to sort of talk through what the data suggested. We'll make all of that available. So for all of our data wonks in the room, if you want to see how that played out, we'll make that available for you to take a look at. Other questions? Yes. Yes. Yeah. Well, it, so let me let me go back to it here. So you're talking about the little gear shift that, that I had up earlier? This, our statement. Yeah. So, you know, there's this dynamic, right? As soon as you call out one thing, you leave something off, you're in trouble, right? And this is not to suggest that, um, you know, being explicit around pieces, because I think that's, that's also part of our challenge, right? Um, there are two ways of engaging diversity work. There's a sort of embedded approach where, you know, you kind of have it, you know, you carve out a few extra dollars and then you put that thing towards the diversity activity, whatever that is, and you, you've sort of done it, right? The challenge is unless you are explicitly tracking that and naming it and you have resources that are specifically earmarked for some of these activities, um, you don't really establish the baseline. And if you don't establish the baseline, you never know where you are. And if you never know where you are, you never get a sense of where you can go. So from our vantage point, uh, trying to talk about um, our overall aspirational commitment to diversity is what the statement was for. And uh, it's not to say that there weren't versions where we named, you know, specific groups or identities. Uh, but one of the things that I, I don't have here, we give a definition of diversity. And our definition of diversity, again, doesn't call out a particular racial ethnic, ethnic group, but we do name, um, articulate racial differences um, ability differences, intellectual differences. Uh, we talk about uh, geographical differences. We talk about sexual orientation differences. I mean, we, we, we talk about the sort of broad buckets as a way of sort of speaking to everyone while not having to name specifically X community, Y community, this community, that community. Um, but the, the degree to which activities are tailored, right, or targeted, that's key, right? So we do have targeted activities. Um, that the university focuses on. So, for example, we have a program called Our Outstanding Women of Color, right? And we recognize and celebrate amazing, amazing women of color on this campus. Uh, when you look at the kind of accolades and awards that are given throughout our institution, um, you know, it's a very homogenous group, right? So we're, we found a way to recognize the, the tremendous scholarship that women of color on our campus, for example, uh, provide and so we we've been explicit in saying no no this is for women of color right and that's how how we define that uh, so that's just an example of you know the balance between here's that sort of aspirational vision and then here's some very concrete things on the ground that get at kind of the specifics that you're talking about
Other questions or comments? Yes. Something on your slide about, I think, your upcoming products caught my eye. Yeah. The overnight options. Mm-hmm. Our second and third shift? Yeah. So staff in general. Well, oddly enough, most of the participants in our, our diversity forum are staff, right? I'd say upwards of 70%, and I'm probably being extra generous on that number. I, I see Mary Carley, my director of communication, sitting in the back. Um, most of our activities are in some way uh, geared towards staff members. But in particular, um, I made a commitment uh, for our second and third shift employees because their voices were often missing from the conversation. And we began our strategic diversity framework work in 2013-14. Um, no one had put listening sessions that sought their inputs. All the listening sessions were during the day. And my colleague, uh, Dr. Ruth Lutowski, we both kind of looked at each other and said, that ain't going to work, right, because the things that we hear from HR or the anecdotal stories that we hear when people kind of come and they, they share their woes, uh, it's not the folk who traditionally are working nine to five. It's the folk who, by and large, are working overnight. They're cleaning our labs. They're cleaning our classrooms. They're cleaning our offices. And so the degree to which there's some check and balance there or at least some way to engage their feedback, uh, we felt it important to listen to those voices. And so my follow-up was after we began that heavy lift of engaging them, during the feedback phase, I wanted to make sure we sustained their input. So the diversity forum was one way of doing that. Now, it took some time to ramp up to it, but we did it. And in large part, I'd say I did it um, because I heard the feedback, but I also had firsthand experience. My mother worked third shift for over 20 years. And so I can remember the stories that she talked about. And I was like, how does that happen? And no one report, right? Because the, the people aren't there, right? It's usually during those nine to five hours. So, you know, something as simple as providing a hot meal, which is a common, common thing that most of our participants in our daytime conferences don't even think twice about. Just kind of, oh, they, y'all didn't serve food this time? No lunch? Like, that's usually the draw, right? But to provide a hot meal for second and third shift employees, you'd have thought we gave them a, a hundred bucks or something, right? It was just a simple gratitude that, yeah, this is what we do. This is how we do this. So uh, that's a value that I, I wanted to make sure we were um, following through on. But more importantly, I, I have a team who helps do that heavy lift because staff have to be available for the overnight sessions. right? So I have staff who show up to work at midnight after having just worked a full day. So it's, it's not an easy lift by any means, but it's one that we recognize. Again, we can't just talk the talk. We have to walk the walk. Other thoughts, or have I bored you enough? Right? She says no. Right? No other thoughts. That's what that is, right? <laughs> no. Yes, sir. Uh, linked to systems, you know, UW systems, colleges, and <clears throat> In terms of our activity, or? Right. So, again, I'll go back to those set of rec recommendations, I'm calling them, but, you know, students' demands. Um, they asked for a system-wide task force. And so um, that task force actually was just convened for the first time this past academic year and will continue to exist in the future. Um, our role in that is pretty small because system has a different focus. Their emphasis is on letting the respective universities, right, the two- and four-year campuses, figure out what works for their institutions. So Madison, we're atypical in the sense, right, that the next largest institution from a fiscal standpoint we're almost twice as large as they are, right? So the things that work for us may not work for the other institutions. And if we compare ourselves to Whitewater or Eau Claire, I mean, you know, night and day, right? So Eau Claire, in some instances, could be parts of the University of Wisconsin-Madison. So I think there are uh, individuals that we refer to as minority and disadvantaged coordinators. Now, let me be clear, it's not my language. This is state language, right, um, what we call Fund 402, which are some state appropriations that are supportive of activities that are geared towards first-gen targeted minorities, et cetera. Uh, and that is a system-wide effort. And so that body convenes and shares best practices, ideas, and so forth. So one of my assistant vice provosts uh, leads that effort. Uh, but the degree to which we engage, support, I mean, we're always looking for good ideas, and we're also willing to share everything that we've been up to. 
Um, so it's it's kind of a come and feast and take what you can and leave what, what doesn't work for you. But the idea is that people are actually taking the work back and activating it and applying it as opposed to just staying in someone's head, right, it's this thing that we do called diversity, right? It's not something we do. It's how we do everything. Great. Well, I don't see a ton of hands rushing up, so I'll take that as a cue, and we're almost near time. Uh, so I just want to say again, thank you all so much for letting me share what I've been up to. Was this helpful? Was it informative? I never know because I do this thing in some shape or form so many times, so I want to make sure that, A, you're understanding it, that I'm not talking too fast, but more importantly, that if you see something that piques your interest and you want to know more about it, please feel free to reach out. Um, we try to be a resource, and we really try to partner and get as much feedback and input. And while I often say, while you may not agree with the decisions that we make, at the very least, you will understand how we came to make those decisions. And so we can appreciate that as a way of engaging and moving forward on this work. Um, and the idea is just that, to keep moving forward, right, that we're accomplishing something, and we know where we were, and we know where we're going. So great. And as you can see, there are several partnerships that's already in play with the UW. Um, you know, we have an equity analysis partnership that's already taken place um, with our marches. And um, there's the um, several other teams that are already um, working um, in partnership that we are working with uh, his office and prospective offices on campus. So um, these are things that we want to continue to happen um, kind of fluidly um, with other stakeholders in the community and we look forward to other things i will provide um, his office contact information and the link on our um, core team email however i'm in the process of changing our core team email um, now it, it will have a new name i still don't know what i'm going to call it but Right after this, we have a core team meeting, and that's on our agenda. So um, stay tuned. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so thank you for coming out, and look forward to our next speaker next month is Wes Sparkman. He is the um, director of the Tamara Grisby Equity and Inclusion for Dane County, and um, information should be going out on that um, once we, we get that from him. So thank you for coming. Have a good afternoon. <laughs> I'm here.